We gotta go to the bullpen. Welcome to the Highland Bullpen, the all-new podcast bringing America's pastime to Scotland shores. It doesn't matter if you're a Hall of Famer heading for Cooperstown or you're fresh out of the minor leagues, this is the podcast for you. Hi folks, it's Alan here and welcome to episode 11. Delighted that we've got Richard back to make sure that we're all keeping our eye on the ball. Over to you, Richard. So it wasn't to be the last of the bullpen bros crashed out of baseball's 2020 season. A more than respectable showing, however, by Dave Jr.'s Chicago White Sox. And you don't look too downhearted tonight, Dave Jr. I know. Um, I've got to really be open-minded about things. Uh, there's been a lot of White Sox, real White Sox fans that have been looking forward to this for a few years. Uh, I've been quite fortunate that this is my first season following the team. Uh, it's been really exciting. So I've been able to learn a bit more about pitching and a lot more about the hitting side, which has been out of this world. Um, it's been really exciting for me to watch. So it's, it's hard to be downhearted about it. As it came to the playoffs themselves, I did mention a few weeks ago, I thought the A's were a good team and I felt they were a really good bet to go on quite far in the competition. And again, it's the White Sox' own fault. The last 10 games might have been three for seven or maybe even two for eight. Again, we should have run away with the division by the time all things were done. So it's our own fault to that extent. However, Oakland, they're a pretty fantastic club, what they've done over the years. There's no disgrace in going out to them at all. And and fair play, I hope they they go on and do well, although I think they might be 1-0 down in the series. In terms of making the playoffs, you've got to look at it and think that was the the aim at the start of the season. A team packed with rookies, really exciting young hitting talent in particular. Definitely a little bit gutted, but we're building towards something next year that's really quite exciting. Maybe a bit similar to Allen's Tigers, maybe a bit further ahead, um, but it's quite exciting. As Scottish football fans, we often get into that mode, perhaps not with the old firm, but in other teams you can quite often see a bigger picture approach being taken and you can feel some youth coming into a team some old pros coming in to to help them out sometimes you get a feeling with a good new young manager and that's the sort of vibe that I felt with the White Sox this year that things are coming together and there's a real project there not one of the more fancied teams but again someone who within the organisation they really feel that they can go places the last game in particular again for those that don't know the White Sox in the three game series took the first game pretty convincingly and then the second game slipped away and the third game was again I think you guys watched alongside me albeit a little bit different geographically but we all watched it together and I think that was one of the first baseball games that I really found interesting it seemed to be a real chess match the two managers or coaches really going off against each other whenever you know, they'd make some pinch hitters going in there, which would then bring someone in from the bullpen. It really seemed to be a cat and mouse game, which at that stage is understandable. But the White Sox were struggling for a starter that day. That particular starter went out after two-thirds of an innings. A young rookie came in who was still playing college baseball back in March. He came in for the second innings. Again, he fell foul to an injury. 
and we really had to work our way through the bullpen the remainder of the game which the bullpen has really worked well for us this year but it just so happened that they had a wee bit of an off day so again it's, it's interesting as you look throughout the series I heard some stats today over the course of the three games I feel like it hitting Tim Anderson our leadoff guy had the most hits on nine, which is a bit of a record for a player making his postseason debut. The next guys were on four. Again, two White Sox players, Jose Abreu and Luis Robert. And then Oakland then came in at three. So, you know, the best over three games, accumulatively, that anybody from the Athletics managed was three hits over the three games, which I think if you look at that, it might tell its own story that perhaps there were a few runners left on base for the White Sox, didn't convert chances. The Athletics were perhaps a little bit more efficient and had that better pitching over games two and three. So to sum up, I'm positive about it. I think things went well. There's a whole lot of positives there for next season. But next season feels a, a really long way away. It doesn't feel like football where you suddenly get into total cup games or a European Championships to look forward to during the summer. It really feels just now like, I, I know you get spring training, but I think if I looked at things correctly, the White Sox schedule, the next game's at the start of April, which it really does feel a million miles away. Terrific, thanks for that, Dave Jr. You know what, it was funny because being a Mariners fan, I'm well used to having to kind of piggyback in other teams for a hint of success. So I kept a close eye on the White Sox and their playoffs bid. And I know, Dave Jr., you've talked about the strength of the pitching as one of the kind of key areas. And the game I saw, I can't remember if it was the third or the second game of the series, I couldn't believe how many pitchers you went through. And at one point, the coach, is it Rick Renteria, threw in someone with bases loaded, making his kind of postseason debut. And it seemed even to a lay person like myself, it seemed a, a crazy decision and a crazy amount of pressure and the poor guy basically fell apart. There's been a little bit of chat, online chit-chat in the last few days, just again, taking everything into stock, taking it all into account. You know, something I would really appreciate uh, your opinion on and Dave and Alan is perhaps a bit longer baseball fans. We always like to bring things back to Scottish football, but we often see substitutes as a slant on that person, that they're not quite good enough to make it into the first 11. But when you're talking about the bullpen, I found it fascinating trying to get my head around that in MLB, in the sport of baseball, that's a role. That to, to be in the bullpen, you're not in the bullpen praying that you can start one day. That is perhaps your specialism. Whereas I think the closest that we can come to over the years is thinking about someone like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who was a specialist in coming off the bench and, and, and nicking goals. But people always felt that he deserved better and could start games. However, using the MLB slant is, no, that's your role. You're very good at it. You know, make the most of that. I found that quite interesting. There's two real distinct roles between a starting pitcher and a bullpen. Absolutely. And, and is that something that happens, Dave Senior, at, at the start of a pitcher's MLB career? Do you start off as a, a kind of bullpen, as a reliever? Or is that something that if someone's career goes by, they might find they've not got the arm to, to last as a starter and they naturally find a home as a, as a reliever? Yeah, I'm not quite sure how they sort of develop. I think, you know, looking back at some of the all-time great relievers, one in particular, sort of Manuel Rivera, the Yankees, I mean, he could throw 100 miles an hour, but you, you can't do that for five, six, seven innings if you want to be an ace starter. So he could probably do one inning and close out a game pretty much every night. How that came part of his game, 
I'm not sure, but if you've got that strong arm, then you can pitch 100 miles an hour. Then you're not going to sacrifice that and think, no, I want to be a starter, because that is something very few pitchers can do is pitch at that sort of level. But whether a pitcher will want that pressure of going in as a reliever every every game, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how it all works out and how you develop or whether you've got your eye on being a closer. Or I think most pitchers would want to be a starter no, pitcher. And pitch. If I could maybe pick up that Dave touched on that there as well. Dave Jr. mentioned the sort of two pitching roles of the starter and the reliever coming from the bullpen. But as Dave touched on there, within the bullpen, you've got your, we'll call them the general relievers, but you also have the closers. So I think the closer is a specialist pitching role where the guy's effectively coming in in, in the last innings, the last few, to get the last few outs. For, for me, it's been quite interesting. I've obviously watched baseball a little bit for a few years this year. I've watched it more seriously. The Tigers have had one or two guys going in and out of the bullpen or one or two starters who have appeared in the bullpen. Part of that is to do, I think, return from injury. So some guys who might be hoping to be starters, you come back from injury and you're not going to say, okay, you're going to be a starter and potentially throw six innings. They might use him as a reliever for a little bit in there. Dave's right as well about you've got a guy with a particularly fast ball use that skill as a closer or or a specific reliever for somebody. You will have guys who potentially can't throw to left and right-handed pitchers. So again, they're going to end up as a reliever and not do the full game. My, My simple understanding, and I guess it's for maybe more experts who are listening to the podcast to tell us, is that most people would probably want to be a starting pitcher, I'd imagine. But that's where the money and the glory is. That's where you're potentially going to pick up the wins. But they will very quickly be identified at major league level as to can you throw 60 to 100 pitches in a game? Or actually, are you good at this, but you can really do 15 to 20? And we will then capitalise on what you've got there as well. Well, that's that's a good point, Alan. One thing I noticed as well, going back to the, the unfortunate Matt Foster, Dave Jr., the pitcher that got thrown into that bases-loaded critical situation. For the White Sox, what struck me was obviously bases-loaded, they're getting up towards a full count. That a full count, bases-loaded, you know another ball's giving away a run. His pitch at that point was still miles outside the strike zone. And it suddenly struck me that unlike football, where from 20 yards, say, if you wanted to hit it, if somebody said to you, you have to score for your life or you have to hit the ball into an empty net, all of us could do that any day of the week by hitting it so softly, it would definitely go in. But it looked to me like even for these top-level baseball pitchers, it's not easy to throw a credible strike in the strike zone, even if you're taking a little bit off it. It's still not an easy target to hit. It's still a small a small target, a big distance and a heap of pressure. A manager how he realises that the starting pitcher is going uh, off the boil. The reason why they don't just throw strikes, that's what you hear some of the fans saying, don't they? throw strikes. If you throw something into the strike zone and it's not good enough, these, these batters will just hit it out of the park. So this is why they're trying to find the edge. If they're just off or their arms a bit, a bit tired, then it's likely to be off target and this is what's happening and they must know the managers must know how many pitches normally the pitcher can go but I don't know which game it was but you could tell that the starting pitcher just wasn't doing it and they didn't take him out of the game they came up to the mound to see him I think the first thing that happens is that the pitching coach goes out talks to him 
are you okay? And then he's on his last warning sort of thing. But in this game, he gave up a couple of runs to two separate hitters and then the manager took him out. At which time I thought, was that really good management? Did he not? But they want the starting pitchers to go as long as possible, don't they, to defend the bullpen, not give them too much work. So because they have to operate pretty much every night. I was actually just going to say there that the bullpen, that the starting pitchers will go on a rotation probably in, in a team of five. So you're going to play every pitch every fifth, sixth night. But the bullpen guys could theoretically be there every night. That's another skill and another way that they then manage their bodies then as well. I was going to ask, because Dave Jr. made a couple of points about the season and how we've now got a six-month off-season. It's one month less for some teams, I guess. Strikes me as that's to do with the American sports schedule. Mm-hmm. You've got football, hockey, basketball and, and baseball and, and now MLS running along those lines. Is it anything to do with the time that a pitcher would need to recuperate his arm and to keep his arm strong? Because continually going through that for a longer season or without six months re- or it's not going to be six months rest because he's going to be winding it up again in February, March time. Is that something to do with that? There is a great deal of wear and tear on a pitcher's arm, isn't it? And one thing that I either heard or read the other day is that these league divisional series that are happening just now, these are best of five games. So we've gone from best of three to best of five. Ordinarily, they would play a couple of games in one park and then have a travelling day, a rest day and then go to the the other ballpark. In all these, because they're playing in a bubble, they're going to be five straight games. So somebody made the point, well, will they, you know, you usually start off with your ace pitcher in game one. Will he be able to pitch again in game five after only four days rest? So which team has five really good starting pitchers? That's if the series goes to, to five games, who the, the eight that are left has... Um, five really top-class starting pitchers or, alternatively, a really good big bullpen. Does the question at that point not even become, is your fifth pitcher really good, but is your, your fifth pitcher better than the opposition's fifth pitcher? Yeah, definitely something in that. If it goes to game five, then they might actually go to the their ace pitcher and just say, well, give me two, three innings, as many as you can, and then bring in the relievers and the bullpens, or even they might have two or three of the starters going together if it's that if it's a you know one game winner takes all then they might just have to do that if they haven't got a credible fifth starter one thing i was going to say as well guys i know we've talked at various points in, in the episodes about the shorter season and the impact that has and how it may, meant that every regular season game carried more importance because you only need to lose a few games and you are right behind the eight ball going forward but i really feel for the guys in the playoffs so far who have had fantastic regular seasons there have been some pitchers who've got up great numbers some really consistent and powerful hitters and for whatever reason for a lot of them it just didn't happen in the playoffs and it seems such a cruel thing that you can be doing fantastic and then just in those three games or whatever that might be for whatever reason don't have it you're like a Reggie Jackson in reverse rather than coming to your best once you hit the postseason you go into reverse and I don't know if I'm part of that psychological but I saw quite a few examples of that Alan I don't know if you've got any thoughts about that 
frustration for, for players who, who just can't replicate their regular season form at the most important time. We'll always have that in football where people play at international level and somebody's going to say he's scoring 30 goals against opposition that you'd expect to be where, you, where you're overpowering them but then you actually turn up and play for the national team against the cream of other countries and, and you can't do the business and that's just a mark of quality is something that takes people onto that extra level. So I completely understand that. I've always felt a bit sorry for the baseball guys because being a stato and the game being decided by that, I, I hate the fact that somebody could have a great record, but then their playoff record is zero and four, or their 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 batting in, in the playoffs is point point zero five as opposed to point five or whatever. So I think that's something that always su- su- saddens me a little bit. Uh, yeah, American sports a bit like that, isn't it? You know, the, the, I say cruel. It's just it focuses on the what they call it clutch don't they which doesn't mean getting a basket full of runs it just means being able to come up with the winning performance when it actually matters and in these playoff games they're playing the best teams they're playing high stakes exactly you know they'll have a game plan if you're the ace hitter on one team then in a three-game series they might not even pitch to you really it can be tough for this the star players you know that's why you need to have more than one or two really good hitters in your lineup I think all sports have that, that ability to require people to perform at that extra level and that's when it, it's interesting because I think that's the level at which it becomes your mental ability over your actual sports ability because at that level there must be so little difference you look at the world of golf Tiger Wood wasn't necessarily that much of a better golfer than all the other guys in tour but he was winning every third or fourth event at one point he was winning all the major championships that's mental ability took him over the line week after week and to beat the others by doing that the reason I thought about Tiger Woods there when you're talking about guys not quite getting over the line a famous American golfer Scott Hoke his surname had an unfortunate word it rhymed with he was known as a bit of a choker Scott Hoke the choker because he was obviously a great golfer but just couldn't get it done and I think if you look at his major record he might have been up there a couple of times couldn't get over the line could I ask one more pitching question, possibly? I think we really enjoyed the discussion on pitching tonight. In the five-game series, and we're talking about generally teams, five-pitcher rotation, what order does the coach put his five pitchers out in? Because I've wondered, do they just go for my best, my second best, my third best, my fourth best? So you've got the matchup of the two best. Or are you trying to have a bit of psychology to say, what's the other coach going to do in terms of what order are they going to put their pitchers out? I was trying to, to look at it this morning and the only one I can really tell is that, you know, the first game, certainly you know my sort of experience of watching in the world series you would go with your race you've got you know the first game you actually would in a seven game series especially with a couple of days break in there you, you know you, you might expect him to pitch three games start so i had a look at the, the yankees ace without doubt seems to be garrett cole he started the first game yesterday and i noticed that he started the first game in the wildcard series as well so that gives you an idea that that's who they will go with their race whether all the other teams have similar guy that they really will go to their go-to guy for the first game i think that generally how it would would work again i know something we always try to do and, and relate that to the world of football could you say it's almost a little bit like a penalty shootout if you leave your striker to fourth or fifth you risk the chance that you might already be 
one or two behind by that point. It's interesting that, that you both bring up the psychology of when to pitch. I, I don't think you can really risk it in such a short series. I, I don't think you can risk being left with your trousers around your ankles by leaving some of your better pitchers in games which don't ultimately take place. You've just got to go for it. And if you've got belief in your team, it, it may actually redouble those efforts as well. Whereas if you play the psychology card and say, well, actually, yes, you're a number one guy, but you're going in game three, it might not make them feel the best as well yeah i think uh, that's a good point dave because it might be too late by then and i did read something this morning uh, it says in the history best of five postseason series the winner of game one has gone on to take the series 98 times out of 136 that's 72 percent that included the 30 of the last 40 have gone to the team that has won first so it is so important such mm. a big deal to be one nil up in the first game in a series of five. So I think nine times out of ten, there'd have to be a pretty good reason why they weren't going with their ace. I guess that would bode well for Arsenal if it's all about being 1-0 up. Yeah. <laughs> and on the football ones, maybe a, a quick shout out. Dave Jr. mentioned the rebuilding process of baseball teams and bringing through the young talent. There's really only one team in the Scottish Premiership that does that. Hamilton Aki's fair play to Hamilton Aki so they've done that for a number of years and in a world threatened by relegation they've had a fairly decent stint of time in the premiership as well so that placing your faith in young players and giving them the chance to come through and to develop and to build their careers has actually worked well for them is that the first official mention of Hamilton Aki's in a baseball podcast it may even be the first mention of Hamilton Aki's in a football podcast if I'm being honest for the benefits of fans uh, in other parts of the world, Hamilton Ackies is a slightly shorter way of saying Hamilton Academicals, one of the finest names, I think, in, in British football. I'm not quite sure if it's quite as good as the Savannah Bananas, which we referenced in a previous episode, but it's definitely a nice and unique one. I imagine, guys, Academicals is probably one of very few football, but second parts of a name that's unique. There's no other top tier or senior football academicals, I don't think, in British football. Although Dave Jr. may be the man to tell me if I'm wrong. No, I'm sure that I've done a quiz question in this once. I'm sure there's around about 27 or 28 versions of what a second name could be within the British game. Uh, and it's always quite interesting to have a wee go at that. We should maybe do it. That sounds like a train journey in Rotterdam. I'm going to throw in one of my, my pet things here as well, because D- Dave's local team, their second name is actually also the first name of football teams as well, which is probably an unusual one. Sterling Albion to Albion Rovers. I've got one from the Highland League. It's A, oh. sufficiently romantic and will be unique as well. Forest Mechanic. Oh, yeah. They're the ones that want like a goalkeeper. Yes, people should read up. Forest Mechanics fantastic. They had a great Polish representation post the Second World War in the team. A lot of Poles ended up there, and I think one of them was a one-legged goalkeeper. I think that's actually true. Remember the Private Eye magazine, where it's still going? Yeah. Their football team was Nised in FC. <laughs> they have a one-legged goalkeeper. I'm sure it was called Wally Foot. Uh, I don't know. This is all coming from the top of my head. Uh, Wick Academy. Wick Academy. Yeah, well, brilliant. Well done. University. <laughs> I suppose a one-legged goalkeeper might have slightly more chance than a one-armed goalkeeper, but I'm not sure who'd be the best to have, who'd be the last one picked in it if you were picking sides in a game of football. I, I don't think, think another, you get the kick-outs, the goal. <laughs> another unique 
kind of second half. I'm looking forward to next week and reading some of my football books and trying to find some unique second names. I'm inspired by Dave's Wick Academy. I should have got that one. I think I've got another one, not quite as good as the, the, the Academy or the, the Blue Collar Mechanics, but it, I'll give you a couple of clues, see if you can guess. They used to play at a stadium called Gresty Road. One of their former players is a very high-profile Scottish manager and they are somewhat famous for a lot of our football travels have occurred via rail. This place and this team definitely have an affinity with the railway system. I don't know. They might, well, my local team down here, not Harrogate Town, who are pretty famous just now, but the, the other one who plays at nearby is Harrogate Railway Athletic. Do you have a soft spot for railway-related teams? Dave Junior, have you got an idea? Uh, you're one of the, the quite a good squad, or should I say a good crew of players? You've cracked it. You've cracked it with crew, indeed, Dave Junior. Crew, Alexandra. I can't imagine there's any other Alexandras in senior football, yeah. I wouldn't have thought. Alan, I meant to ask you there, were you able to guess the, the high-profile Scottish football manager, a personal favourite of yours, former crew Alexandra Hero? I, I detect an element of sarcasm. From me, Alan, surely, surely not. Not Lou McCary. No more contemporary than that, though. Certainly the current Celtic manager rather than a former one, Alan, Neil Lennon. Yeah, he was a crew as well. Crew always had a reputation of producing, I know you, you're probably not going to agree, but good footballers like Sir Danny Murphy, boy called Rob Jones, former England right-back and Liverpool right-back. not followed Neil Lennon's managerial career that closely. <laughs> on, on one of my ground-hopping trips, where I went to see Blackburn, and they were playing Bolton, so that's a, a wee bit of a derby. And the pub I ended up in was a Bolton pub. These two guys started talking to me because they obviously heard me ordering my pint and I was Scottish. And they were telling me how excited they were and how they couldn't believe that they got a manager of Neil Lennon's qualities. And what did I think of that? And was it going to be great? And I said, no, I'm going to go and find a pint somewhere else to sit slightly <laughs> in the corner now. Yes, no, I can see how that might not have panned out that well. They oh, might no, not I... have understood the intricacies of Scottish football at that point. No, I can appreciate that. Actually, on the subject of various quizzes and trivia I don't even notice that the We Red book is making a return Scottish football's Bible if you like this is something produced every year it had all the pictures in it told you all the kind of history fact as well and I'm thinking obviously Dave Senior cricket has got wisdom Scottish football has its We Red book I, I don't know if baseball's got an annual people Refer to that you would think they would have, wouldn't you, in terms of the statistics? I'm sure I'm only guessing here, but I'm pretty sure it'll be an official just book of numbers, you know, batting averages and run ratios of that way. Yeah, in actual fact, a, a favorite film of mine, which is very obscure, one of the clues in the film was these three numbers that kept reappearing. Two people that they were looking for were communicating in these numbers and kind of code. And he eventually worked it out that it was a batting average. You had to look up the batting average for the top player that season and his initial, and eventually it spelled out who they were looking for. So it didn't tell you what he wanted to know. And I just double checked actually when you're talking about Crew Alexandra, I had a feeling David Platt started career off Crew as well, played about 150 games, produced a few good players over the years. The Rothmans annual, wasn't it? That was really the, the football book that you needed to get with all the, the numbers and the stats. I presume it's still issued, but, you know, if you want to find out something now, you tend to Google it, don't you? Yeah, you're, you're not wrong, Dave Senior. I remember starting out as a, a journalist more years ago in the UK 
care to remember. And we had a stack of Rothman yearbooks, big blue things, big yeah. kind of luxurious feeling things going back about 30 years, I think. And that was it. You laboriously turned and licked oh, each yeah. page trying to find information you needed. They were indispensable, weren't they? You know, and every every four years, you'd probably get one after a World Cup as well. But yeah, not that I will ever go on to Desert Island this after they've picked their eight or nine records they, to choose a book to take and many years ago that would have probably been my book of choice at the latest Rothman's football annual. Oh, I, I, I thought you'd have been a wisdom man. Yeah, a limited choice to take to your desert island. Yeah, either would be pretty good but you know, although I love cricket, I think football's really the one where you've got most interest in to be, to be perfectly honest, to, to savour the, the numbers. Although yeah, the wisdom would be fine but that goes into sort of minute detail on non-league cricket which you know, no matter how you love, how much you Love cricket. How are getting on or whatever. <laughs> but Dave Junior, who is always good for a bit of research, I think has dug out the fact that baseball also had, I think, a, a little red book in times going past. Dave Junior. Yeah, I just did a quick search there, and it looks like definitely in the forties through until the sixties, at least, a little red book of baseball. So I can imagine off nineteen sixty-two was the thirty-seventh annual edition. So it looks as if it was perhaps a long-standing tradition at that point. I wonder at which point our wee red book kick-started if it's been half-inched. Um, yeah, you know what? I was going to say that, Dave Jr. as well. I suspect you might well have uncovered one of Scottish football's hidden scandals there. You, you have single-handedly ruined the reputation of a Scottish football treasure. The Evening Times comes crashing down to the ground, oh dear. Sorry about that, folks. You, you've taken a baseball back to one of the hallowed traditions of Scottish <laughs> football there, Dave Jr. We also need to find out whoever was first, and, and let's not give the Evening Times a hard time yet, uh, why it's the Little Red Book. Richard with, mentioned his journalism there. Richard will know why the Tour de France leader wears a yellow jersey. Dave Ince is the man with a wide sporting knowledge, Alan, and I must confess you have humiliated me, and now again, I'll see if Dave Ince can bail me out. I'm not sure whether I'll get this right, but there might be a connection with the World, World Series, but wasn't it something to do with a, a newspaper or a periodical that was covering or sponsored the Tour de France and it was printed on yellow paper? Exactly. And if the Gazzetta del Sporto is an Italian paper, what colour would the leader of the Giro d'Italia cycling race wear? Is that pink? It is pink. Well done for another newspaper link. We used to get the green final in the Yorkshire Evening Post on Saturday for I think in Lancashire, it was in Manchester, it was the pink and... Is that how St Mirren get their colours? Yeah, someone left a red sock in the, in the wash. Good chat, guys. I enjoyed that. Now I'm going to pass over to Dave Senior, who's just going to give us a quick rundown on the deciding game in the Rays and Yankees match. Rays pinch it. Mike Brousseau came off the bench last night in the sixth to replace G-Man Choi at first base in one of many tactical moves made by Rays manager Kevin Cash. In his first two at-bats on the night, 
the Rays pinch hitter reached on an infield single and then smacked the winning home run off Yankee closer Aroldis Chapman, the man who had almost beamed Brousseau earlier in the regular season. Mike Brousseau, the hero, was undrafted in 2016 and signed to Tampa Bay Rays in that year as a free agent on a minor league contract. His path to glory in last night's divisional playoff decider came via stints with Tampa's affiliate teams, Gulf Coast League Rays, Bowling Green Hot Rods and Charlotte Stone Crabs before being assigned to Tampa Bay Rays in March 2018. He spent that summer with AA affiliates Montgomery Biscuits before being invited to spring training in January 2019. He was optioned to the Rays AAA outfit Durham Bulls before being called up for his Major League debut in June of that year. Such is the path to glory. The news ahead of fifth game showdown at Petco Park was that six foot eight Tyler Glasnow would start for the Rays on two days rest and Yankee ace Garrett Cole had gotten the call with the luxury of three days with his feet up. The Rays were the home team and so Glasnow started things off and gave his manager two and a third innings of scoreless baseball, walking two and striking out two in the process. He had faced exactly nine batters when he was replaced by Nick Henderson and one commentator observed that maybe the Rays manager was not going to let the Yankees hitters get a second look at a pitcher tonight. This is pretty much exactly what happened. Henderson gave up two hits and a run in his two and a third innings and then fellow reliever Pete Fairbanks gave his manager two full innings of one-hit pitching before Diego Castillo closed it off in the 8th and ninth. Meanwhile, Garrett Cole had settled down after a shaky start in the first inning where he had loaded the bases with two walks and a hit. He got out of that one without any damage and kept the Rays off the board through four. The first run of the game came for the Yankees in the top of the fourth. The Rays had set a four-man outfield for danger man Aaron Judge who then promptly hit the ball over the heads of the Rays' quartet of outfielders to put the boys from the Bronx ahead. To use a football term, the Rays equalised in the fifth when Austin Meadows hit a home run to right field, only just clearing the wall. The Yankees' six foot seven right fielder Aaron Judge looked like he might have had it covered, but he appeared to slightly misjudge his jump and bump his head on the padded overhang of the wall, thus impeding his effort to rob the Rays. A game of inches indeed. The Rays can now look forward to the American League Championship Series against the Astros while the Yankees head home. This series had been billed as something of a grudge match between two teams who are fast developing a rivalry. They genuinely don't appear to like each other. The bench-clearing incident back in October when Chapman gave Brousseau some chin music really set this one up for a storybook ending. About an hour after the game, the Rays players took to the field to celebrate some more, playing Frank Sinatra's New York, New York over the tannoy and surely stoking the rivalry some more in the process. It's the song they play in the Bronx after Yankee victories. Roll on next season. So, the Rays are king of the hill tonight and a Tampa Bay Stanley Cup and World Series double bill is still on the cards. (laughs) 